0: His mercy is more. How much we need God's mercy. How much we need Him even when we fail. And He still loves us and extends that mercy and that grace to us. Failure. The word itself is kind of like a gut punch. And the experience of failure is even more so. I was thinking about some failures in my life and decided to share one that's safe. When I was 16 and a half, 17, I had just had my license, hadn't had it very long. And it was a Sunday after church and my dad asked me to take my sister and drop her off at an event that she was going to be part of. And so I took her there and I was coming up out of the parking lot, which was kind of a slope up. And I was turning left, and so when I accelerated to get up the slope and to turn left, I hit a patch of ice, and I spun out and put my, the rear end of my dad's car into a telephone pole. All right, what is dad going to say? Will I ever drive again? Do I want to ever drive again after that? Well, thankfully, he was very gracious and obviously I'm still driving, but failure. And maybe yours are far more serious. Maybe you have something that that you have failed and a sin that you've committed and you've taken it to God and you've asked Him for forgiveness, you've repented, but the weight of that failure still hangs on you. You have a hard time getting over it. Maybe it's a failure in family or failure in finances or maybe it's some other kind of a moral failure and and you have this question in the back of your mind, is it over? Will I ever drive again? Will I ever do this again? Well, Israel had suffered a great defeat back in chapter 7 of the book of Joshua and and they have handled it well. They repented. They turned from their sin. They, They turned to God But they had to be asking the question, now what? Well, Joshua chapter 8 gives us now what? And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices as we think about how God treats Israel after their failure because it becomes a a model, a pattern for how he also treats us after our failures. And so Joshua chapter 8 reassures us That our failures are not fatal in fact it, it lays out at least three reassuring truths for you and for me at least for any of us who've ever failed which i assume probably includes everybody in this room as well as those of you who are watching online repentance results in a restored relationship with god When Israel repented, when we genuinely repent, God restores that relationship. It's not over. When I hit the rear end of my dad's car against a telephone pole, he didn't end our relationship. And when we turn from our sin, God forgives us and takes us back. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. That sounds a little familiar. It's What he said to Joshua in chapter 1. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed by what's happened. Move on. Take all the fighting men with you. Notice all the fighting men with you. And arise up. Go up to Ai. Don't wallow in failure, Joshua. Get up. Don't stay on your face. Remember last week when he was on his face before the ark? Don't worry. Don't be so wrapped up in failure that you don't see what I'm doing. Go up to Ai. See, I have given you, past tense, promise. I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. But something changes. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. If only Achan had waited lay an ambush against the city behind it. I want you to notice that that God takes the initiative here. As Joshua is, is wondering what's next, what does God want from us, what can we do now that we have failed, but we've put the failure behind us, God takes the initiative and comes to Joshua, and it's a good reminder to us that God uses us again. When we repent, He restores us, And he uses us. We're able to hear God's voice because we've repented. The the sin that was there isn't plugging our ears anymore. And he encourages Joshua and he he gives him a plan. Different from Joshua's plan in chapter 7. And he says, Joshua, take the whole army. Why? Because you're weak. Without me, you're weak. And I want you to remember that. So take the whole army and set an ambush for the people, God uses us again when we fail, and we come to Him in repentance. He forgives. But we follow then in obedience, because repentance, real repentance, always results in obedience in life. We can't say, well, I'm, I'm turning away from my sin to God, but now I'm going to go my own way after that. doesn't work that way. If the repentance is genuine, we will follow Him. obedience Sunday school teacher was asking her students one day what is repentance and a little girl said well repenting means being sorry for your sins the little boy said yes it's being sorry for your sins but it's being sorry enough to quit and I would add to him and to obey to follow to walk with God And so once again in this passage, we're going to see God speaking to Joshua, Joshua hearing and relaying it to the people, and the people doing what is commanded. In fact, just as an example, look at verses 3 and 4 and kind of compare it with verses 1 and 2 that I've put on the screen for you. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. So Joshua gives the commands that echo the commands that God had given. And the people obey. We see the strategy beginning to unfold And we don't know how much of the details Joshua was given by God and how much he decides for God. This is God's broad parameters. So within those broad parameters, here's what we're going to do. But notice what he says to the people. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city and they will come out against us just as before. We shall flee before them and they will come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. Follow God's command. See, I have commanded you. I am following God's command. I'm commanding you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush. And lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night among the people. So we're introduced for the first time to the fact that Bethel is there too, to the west of Ai. And we're going to see them engaged in just a couple of moments as well. But Joshua and his people have to believe God and do the work. The president of the seminary I graduated from used to call that the Divine Human Cooperative Where, yes, God does the work, but we have to work with him in that. God doesn't just sit back and say, I'll take care of everything. You guys just take it easy. In fact, this time he doesn't even say, march around the city and the walls will fall. This time there's an attack on the city that has to take place. And so Joshua and the people have a strategy. The main Israeli army is going to approach the city from the north when the people of ai come out to attack them they're going to pretend to run like they really ran last time you'll notice the phrase pops up as before several times isn't it interesting that god and joshua actually use the past failure running away as a strategy for victory this time so they're going to pretend to run away and as they are running away the army of ai will be drawn out of the city We're going to see in a moment the army of Bethel is also drawn out of the city to chase the running Israelites. Meanwhile, there are 30,000 Israelite soldiers hidden behind Ai. And the terrain of that area is full of canyons and ravines and it's easy to hide. And so that's what they're doing. And as soon as the people of the army of Ai leaves the city to pursue Israel, These 30,000 troops are then to assault the city, take the city and light it on fire. And once the city is burning, then Joshua and the main army are going to turn around and the soldier of Ai and of Bethel will be stuck between two armies of Israel and they'll be defeated. God said to them, I have given you the city. And in verse 7, Joshua says, the Lord will give you the city as you obey And so they do what Joshua commands, and it happens, just like he is saying it's going to happen. But the narrator, the author of the book, likes to kind of circle around. You've noticed that in the book before. And so he kind of circles back and gives some more details, and it gets a little confusing at times to figure out what exactly is going on. Because we have here 30,000 Israelite soldiers in ambush, but in verse 12, we're told there are 5,000 Israelite soldiers in ambush. So did they just mix up the numbers or what? And there are a lot of creative explanations. I prefer just to take it straightforward and say Joshua decided to set a second ambush with 5,000 Israelite soldiers, so that they are there to cut off the troops that would be coming from Bethel and to ultimately take the city of Bethel, which is larger than Ai. We know nothing about that from the text. It doesn't tell us about the battle for Bethel. What we do know is later on in the book, when all the cities are listed that were conquered, it lists Bethel. So I think we can pretty safely assume that takes place in this battle because again, all of the soldiers in Bethel go out after Joshua and the main army leaving the city wide open for that ambush of 5,000 troops to take the city and to cut off those reinforcements. Now that's all just nice to think about and try to sort and figure out but the real point, the real point is the reassuring truth that repentance results in a restored relationship, that God uses us again, that when we follow in obedience, He will allow us to experience victory. So as we've talked about in previous weeks, when we become aware of sin in our lives, we need to repent. And having repented, we then need to move on and move ahead with God. Don't wallow in the failure. Don't wallow in the defeat. Follow God. And God graciously encourages us as he does with Joshua here and he uses us again. So if you feel like you've failed, get back into the Word. Spend time talking to God in prayer. Begin serving. Move ahead. Don't let failure paralyze us. So let's flash back in my life to another point of failure. When I, when I was in middle school, junior high we called it back then, uh, my friend Keith and I Both played the French horn. And we were battling often between who would be first and second chair. I don't know what they do now, but back in that day, you would challenge the person ahead of you. So I'd challenge him. If I took first chair, then eventually he'd challenge me. And we just kind of went back and forth like that. And I don't remember specifically what happened, whether it was a concert or a big rehearsal or what. But there was some point when the French horn section, led by the two of us, bombed royally. The director was not particularly happy, but he did say, you've got to learn to play again. And out of that came an inscription that my friend Keith wrote in my yearbook, which was, when you fall off the horse, get back on again. That's a good advice for life. When we fail, don't wallow in the failure. If we need to repent, we repent and we move on we learn from our failures we we even use as israel did here sometimes the failure to motivate us and to move us but we move on trusting god repentance results in a restored relationship with god and a restored relationship with god brings a renewed experience of god's power when our defeat is history and we're not wallowing anymore, we're following, then God will work. And that's what we see happening in this story. We see that we can move ahead with confidence in God. That's exactly what Joshua and the troops do. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. So you don't see a hesitancy I'm sure there were some people who were were afraid, were saying, what if we lose again? But not in Joshua. He gets up early in the morning and moves out. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men, here's that second ambush, and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. All the fighting men go up. The exact obedience is emphasized. He's moving forward. There's no fear of defeat. There's not even fear of dividing his army up because he knows that God is with him. Why? Because he's repented and God's restored the relationship And now he's about to experience the power of God. Let's jump ahead a little in the story. You can read some of the rest of it later and see how it happens just as was planned. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, see, God is faithful. And we see God's faithfulness again. And that the smoke of the city went up. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city. The other Israelite troops, having now set Ai on fire, come out against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. The plan works to perfection. Ai and, I believe, Bethel both fall. But it's not Israel that does it. Oh, sure, they're fighting. But it's God and his faithfulness that brings the victory. And and we're given a clear indication of that. In verse 1, God says, I have given you the land. And then backing up a little bit in the story, in verse 18, God unexpectedly speaks again. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, verse 26 says, with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. See, if you read the whole chapter, what you find is that Joshua told his troops, the ones in ambush, when you see me raise my javelin that's the signal for you to attack the city and set it on fire so the raising of the spear was a signal to the ambushes but you know what it was more than that it was a signal to the ambushes but it was a sign that this victory was coming through god's power Because notice, Joshua stays on top of that hill, probably where he's very visible, holding out that spear through the whole battle until it's finished. Which ought to remind you of another story. Exodus 17, where Joshua is in the valley fighting the Amalekites and Moses is on top of the mountain with the rod of God. And when he holds the rod of God up, Joshua and Israel wins. And when his arms got tired and he lowered it, they start to lose. And so Aaron and Hur come alongside of Joshua or Moses and help him hold the rod up. I think there's a deliberate reference to that in what God has Joshua do. Hold out the spear because it isn't you that's winning this victory. Ultimately, it's me because I have given the city into your hand. And Joshua and the people are reminded of God's faithfulness by the sign of the spear being raised. And Ai and Bethel are plundered just like God had commanded. Verse 27, only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel, took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So they do exactly what God says. And the king of Ai is captured And he's brought to Joshua, and because he is a leader in rebellion against God, and because 36 men died at his hand earlier in the war, he's executed. And verses 28 and 29 tell us, Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Remember I told you last week the word Ai means ruin or dump, and maybe that's why it got that name, maybe it had that name before. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they threw his body down, took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones. Here's another mound of stones which stands there to this day. A heap of stones that remind Israel of victory of God's faithfulness. But tucked away in that whole narrative is also an act of obedience. Because Joshua took the king's body down at sunset and buried it under rocks. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 21, it says you're not to leave a body hanging through the evening because it brings a curse on the land. Every element Joshua is obeying, in every element God is being faithful. Because our restored relationship with God, with our obedience, brings a renewed experience of God's power. So, if you feel far away from God, you need to take a step back and check what's going on. Sometimes that feeling comes simply because you're in a dry time spiritually. Those things happen to all of us. We're not disobedient, we don't need to repent. We just need to keep on reading the Word and talking to God in prayer and serving and praying for Him to take away the dryness. But sometimes you take a step back and you say, I feel far away from God. He didn't move, I did. I walked my own way. I did my own thing as Israel did in the first battle of Ai because Achan was disobedient. And then we need to repent and come back and he restores us to relationship and he uses us and his power flows through us. We have a great example of that in this week of Holy Week Because Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, not me, everybody else may, but I never will. And then he goes into the enemy's camp and he says, I don't know who you're talking about. Never met the guy. I have no idea. I'm not one of his followers. And when the rooster crows, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And we aren't given the privilege of seeing that scene after Jesus rises from the dead, but we know he meets with Peter. And he restores him. We do get a glimpse of it in John 21 when Peter and the others go fishing and Jesus meets them on the shore. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Restoring him to ministry. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and 3,000 men come to faith in Jesus. Probably larger than any single event in Jesus' life. Because the Holy Spirit's power was flowing through Peter. Why? Because he had a restored relationship with God through repentance and fellowship with God. A restored relationship brings a renewed experience of God's power. And then Israel does something kind of strange. Because following a big victory like this and having taken an area that now opens up the heartland of Israel to them on the roads they can travel and they can conquer, they don't take advantage from a human standpoint of their momentum. They don't take advantage and press that advantage. Instead, they march 20 or 30 miles north to Shechem. And there at Shechem, they hold a covenant renewal ceremony. It's not a logical move. They should have pressed their advantage, but it's done in obedience to what Moses commanded. In Deuteronomy 11 and again in Deuteronomy 27, Moses had said, when you're in the land, go to Shechem and hold this covenant renewal ceremony. He doesn't say when, but notice that Joshua and the people do it as soon as they are able to in obedience to God and to Moses. And so let's read about that covenant renewal ceremony. It begins in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. We'll come back to that in a couple minutes. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. It's a covenant renewal ceremony And it reminds us that the blessings of repentance call us to recommitment. When we repent and when God restores that relationship and he gives us a renewed experience of his power, that points us to reaffirming our allegiance and our commitment to him. And so we affirm our relationship with God. They did it through sacrifice. They did it by offering sacrifices on an altar built on Mount Ebal there at Shechem. What's interesting is that when Abraham first entered the land of promise, his first altar was built at Shechem. When Jacob, after his years of exile in Haran, you know, where he got his wives and families, when Jacob came back into the land, he built an altar At Shechem. And so here, Israel builds this altar on Mount Ebal at Shechem, just as Moses commanded. And they build it of uncut stones. I think there's two reasons why uncut stones one minor, the other pretty big. I think, in one sense, uncut stones, because the Canaanites would shape the stones for their altar. So this distinguishes them from the Canaanite worship. But I think the bigger reason is that they are building an altar there that they didn't provide, that they didn't work for. They're building it out of stones they haven't shaped because they approach God not based on what they can do but on what God has done. And so they build this altar and they offer sacrifices there. They offer burnt offerings where the offering's completely consumed as a sign of commitment, as a payment for sin. And then having covered their sins with that offering, they offer peace offerings, fellowship offerings, as they come and they reaffirm their relationship with God. But they not only reaffirm their relationship with God, they reaffirm wholehearted obedience. And that's part of our commitment to God. God, I will obey you from my heart. And there is a focus in this passage on God's law. Propositional truth, not very popular today, and yet this passage clearly teaches that God's truth, His propositional written revelation, is what we base our lives and our obedience upon. Notice that this part of the ceremony comes after the sacrifices because it's only after we are right with God that we can really obey God. and so it tells us that moses writes on stones a copy of or joshua writes on stones a copy of the law of moses and the big question is what is that and you can read all kinds of answers ten commandments well it makes sense those were written on stone originally but it seems bigger than that Maybe a part of the book of Deuteronomy, which part? Uh, The part that talks about the blessings and the curses that they're going to do, maybe. Or maybe he wrote the whole book of Deuteronomy, that second law. That's what the word means. In fact, we have found stones, they're called steles. We found stones like this on which things have been written. And we found them that are eight feet high and very wide that were big enough that you could write more than just the book of Deuteronomy on them. What's really interesting is when we find things like this archaeologically, they are celebrating great victories that a king had. Joshua doesn't talk about the great victory at Jericho or the great victory at Ai. It records the law of God. Because the key to victory is obedience to God. And so Joshua writes this on stone before all Israel as they watch to remind them that they must obey. That's how they'll win. And in a sense, the altar and these stone pillars that have the book of Deuteronomy or whatever on them are also staking a claim and saying, I'm planting the flag, this land belongs to God. And then Joshua reads whatever it is he had written. He reads it all. And he reads it for the all Israel and the sojourners, the non-Israelites among them, the people who'd come out of Egypt that, or the people they've collected along the way or people like Rahab and her family. And he, he reads it and he has half of Israel standing in front of and on Mount Ebal and half standing in front of and on Mount Gerizim. Both those mountains are just about 3,000 feet high. And between them there's this natural amphitheater still used uh, today. And in that in-between area, the ark of God stands because it is God who is in the midst of His people. It is God's law that they are hearing. And they stand on those two mountains and we're told that, the, that they read the curses and the blessings to all the assembly of Israel. They read all that Moses commanded. And so the curses of the law are read Mount Ebal and the people say amen from Mount Ebal when the curses are read and the blessings are read and the people on Mount Gerizim say amen to the blessings and it is a reminder to the people that there are only two options you're either going to obey God and receive blessing or you're going to disobey God and experience curse and judgment which mountain do you want to stand on? Now, they were assigned mountains, but I think that's the the underlying question is, which do you want to be in, Israel? There's no neutrality. There's either obedience or disobedience, and it's only obedience that avoids another defeat like Ai. The blessings of repentance call us to recommit ourselves to our relationship and our obedience To God. It's really interesting that this takes place right in the middle of the conquest. I mean, they've had a couple of battles. There's a ton of battles still to come. Why in the world does everything stop to do that? And maybe it's because this time of year and I've watched way too much basketball. But it's kind of like God calling a timeout. You know, there's 10 seconds left in the game, and the coach calls a timeout and he gathers his team and he says, This is what we need to do to have victory. If we're we're behind and they have the ball, we need to press them and get the ball back. If we're ahead, we need to get the ball in bounds and we need to take care of it and make our free throws. It reminds them, time out. Let's talk about what is really important. It's like God calls a time out as Israel is in the middle of their conquest with many battles still to come and says, let me remind you of what's really important. Your relationship to me that flows out in obedience. So the question that that leaves us asking is what it left Israel asking, which mountain are we on? Are we on the mountain of obedience, and the mountain of blessing? Or are we on the mountain of disobedience, the mountain of judgment? And if you say, man, I have been on the mountain of judgment, then I have really good news for you. Because where was the altar built It was built on Mount Ebal. It was built on the mount of cursing, of judgment. Because the answer to judgment is sacrifice. And the answer for your disobedience and my disobedience is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What we celebrate this week when he dies on the cross. Galatians says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from being under Mount Ebal by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And so Jesus hangs on the tree and he bears the wrath of God. He bears the judgment of God that you and I deserve. And if you've never trusted in Christ, that's what you need to go home with today. All the historical stuff is great, but you need to understand that you are on the mountain of judgment and the only escape is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, before you leave here, talk to somebody. If you're watching online, call our office and talk to somebody. And if you're a follower of Jesus, but you've moved from Mount Gerizim to Mount Ebal by disobedience, the good news is there's forgiveness. There's repentance. There's restoration. There's being used by God again because of his grace. Because they underwent a covenant renewal ceremony. Because of Calvary, when Jesus hangs on a cross on another hill, we have a new covenant. God says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, not on stone tablets. And write them on their hearts, not on stone tablets. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness. Restoration. Because Jesus paid for your sins and mine. And so Joshua chapter 8 gives us a preview of that. By reminding us that repentance results in a restored relationship with God that then brings a renewed experience of God's power. And when we see that in our lives, it calls us to recommit ourselves to a relationship of obedience with Him. See, the cross means our failures are not fatal. So we need to repent and be restored by God's grace. That idea of restoration from failure, failure not being fatal, it's all over human literature because it's a theme that resonates with us, right? I'm not done because I failed. I can pick that up and I can go on again. And we understand we can go on again in the power of Christ. But I thought about a movie that was popular a few years ago, The Greatest Showman. The story of P.T. Barnum, and if you've seen it, you know that, that he fails, spectacularly fails. But the song that comes near the end, from now on, he says, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. It starts tonight. And let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart from now on. That's repentance biblically speaking. And then the chorus begins to sing, and we will come back home, and we will come back home, home again. That's restoration. And while P.T. Barnum didn't understand it biblically, we do. Restoration comes when we repent and come back home to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. The human heart longs for restoration. It longs to overcome failure, and we understand ultimately that only comes because you are gracious, because you love us enough to send your Son to pay for our sins and our failures so that we can be back in a right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are are in need of repentance, they would do that. If there are others who are in need of... stopping wallowing in their defeat and failure and moving on, following, help them to do that. And if there's anyone who's never trusted Christ, Lord, may they make that decision even today to come back home to you. All possible because of what we celebrate this week, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.